We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. We'll talk today to Brian Hendricks, VP of Policy and Government Relations at Nokia, about 5G, China, the telecom industry, and the dreaded takeover of a Nordic telecom supplier by the USG. Thanks. Why don't you give us sort of an overview of where Nokia thinks the 5G market is heading? Well, sure. So we have signed our 79th deal. So the thing that uh, we would point to is that there's a lot of the, the 5G commercial business, uh, by that I mean the, the consumer network business, which has not yet been decided. And, and that's an important thing to underscore with folks who think somehow the 5G die has been cast in favor of the Chinese suppliers. A, a good portion of the business hasn't been spoken for yet. Lots of key decisions coming up in markets uh, like Asia Pacific and Latin America, even most of Europe. Those are going very well. They're very, very competitive. And then the next phase will actually be probably the more lucrative and even if it is the more silent topic, and that is the 5G enterprise market. Yeah. Um, lots of interest in the private network capabilities and that's starting to heat up as well. Um, we're doing quite well, and 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 uh, so are our peers, and and finding industry partners who are willing to take that plunge. So, I think we're in a we're in a really key spot right now, where you're going to start to see a lot of decisions being made, and a lot of those decisions are being made in markets where the U.S. has been working very hard to raise the issue about trusted suppliers. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of opportunities mm-hmm. out there that. Um, that I think people will be pleased when when the summer's over at how that has gone. This is a little bit of an aside, but I thought I thought the enterprise market would lead the consumer market. I thought Nokia was doing pretty well in the enterprise market. We we, we are doing well in the enterprise market. I think the the first move was actually using LTE technology, which was very robust and very well developed selling private LTE networks into enterprises, mostly overseas, believe it or not, at first, you know, things like in Latin America with mining companies who are looking for for coverage over their, their mining operations and private LTE networks. Uh, in the U.S., I think there was, there was a bit of a pause uh, as people kind of wanted to see what what spectrum would be made available and on what timeline we did have, as you know, right now, there's an auction going on at the FCC for, for 3.5 gigahertz spectrum, but it took, it took a good bit of time for the FCC to kind of rest the, the unlicensed portion of that band uh, away from, you know, the regulatory process. And so we really didn't get started deploying enterprise Mm -hmm. in, mid-band uh, 5G until late last fall. So that's picking up steam. There's a lot of interest from utility companies that, that are looking at it, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of interest from transportation and logistics companies. And and so that's, in the U.S., it's it's a little bit behind the curve, but starting to accelerate greatly. And and I think you'll see that, that trend continue. In terms of would it be 
would we have expected enterprise to lead the consumer use case? Not necessarily. I mean, the consumer use case is the one that the carriers know. It's their established business and yeah. one where the business case made sense to deploy early. I think we we didn't expect there to be as much of a lag as you're seeing, but I think the enterprise market is, is really starting to catch up fast. Is Wi-Fi your competitor in the enterprise market? And tell us, tell us why 5G is better than Wi-Fi in your unbiased view. <laughs> I think they, 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 do, they do different things. And, and I think Spectrum, again, was, was one of the big limiting factors for enterprise, for LTE, and for 5G is that, you know, you needed to have a situation where you could have unlicensed use so that the, you didn't have to acquire Spectrum in, in order to have a, a network deployed. So consider something like a, a football stadium, which is something, or, mm-hmm. or a NASCAR arena, which is something that we started yeah. looking at a couple of years ago. Uh, there was great interest in being able to provide coverage over a, a venue like that. Yeah. But those venue owners really didn't want to have to go and compete and buy Spectrum and equipment to do it. So once you began to see Spectrum and the right bands made available on an unlicensed basis, that that is no longer the barrier to entry. Now you can your business case depends on how much equipment do you need and for what purpose. And so you're seeing things like in NASCAR, they'll be using our technology to you know, link up with, you know, 4K surround video in the car of your favorite driver, you know, local capture content in the stadium that can be streamed to your device. Those are value added propositions, but that business case wouldn't have been squared if they had to go out and buy, buy the spectrum to do it. And in terms of what's better 5G or Wi-Fi, again, it's going to be use case specific. Wi-Fi simply wouldn't have the throughput and reliability to do something like that. And, and so it'll be similar with, factory automation, right? I mean, if you're running highly sensitive equipment uh, on a factory floor, you're going to be looking for a high degree of reliability, which means, you know, low latency, lots of throughput. Wi-Fi is probably not the right solution there, but there are plenty of other solutions for which that works. And by the way, you know, we sell, we sell Wi-Fi equipment as well. And, and so I think it's, it's very, very use case specific. Let's, Switch it a little bit and ask, um, give us your views or Nokia's views on decoupling. I mean, this is a big topic. Some of my CSIS colleagues are wringing their hands over it. I think it's kind of inevitable, but it's going to be piecework and patchy. Where does Nokia come out on decoupling? So you're talking about decoupling supply chains? You're talking about decoupling the radio access? Decoupling. Well, we can talk about both, but let's start with supply chains because I did this TIA event this morning that was pretty good with the Germans, the Japanese, and the Americans. Right. They all seem to be on the path of this is going to happen, so get ready. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think for our part, you know, I'm reasonably optimistic. A year a little more than a year ago, we were having conversations around the National Defense Authorization Act where there was a thought about just if it's sourced in a, in a, in a high-risk country, mm-hmm. we don't want it there. You have to move it sort of without regard to what it was or whether it actually raised mm-hmm. risks or what other people might have done to, you know, to prevent adulteration of their supply chain. And where we are now in, in the discussion is you can't move everything right away. And one of the principal limiting factors is that industrial base for certain things doesn't exist 
in the U.S. or in other markets. So here's a, here's an example I give all the time. Uh, a heat sink is a is a pretty important aspect of the, the the radio to help cool it, and it's also highly competitive in terms of design. Mm-hmm. I'd love nothing more than to be able to develop that somewhere other than China. The problem is the aluminum die casting capability that you need to do something like that. All of that industrial base belongs to the automotive industry in the U.S. So there's a precursor step mm-hmm. before you move something. You actually have to invest in creating that, that industrial base. So in the short run, since you can't move everything and you need time to ramp up, you need to really narrow the aperture of what you're most concerned about. Define for us the things in the supply chain of, as far as hardware that give you the most concern. You know, tell us. It's not mounting harnesses and screws and racks. It's what? Mm-hmm. Printed circuit boards, power supplies. You know, tell us define those high risk elements. You may find those Mm -hmm. things aren't in places that worry you to begin with, but we need a better working definition for the the universe of things that cause the greatest level of concern. So we can begin to phase relocation of that supply chain, address the highest risk items first without a huge impact to cost and performance. And I think the conversations are trending in a better direction. It'd be more helpful if there was from from the current administration and better definitions around those topics. But mm-hmm. I can have a conversation, <clears throat> excuse me, with, you know, DHS, you know, with CISA mm-hmm. folks, and I get one outlook for things that worry them. And then I talk to someone else in a different agency and I have a different discussion. So I think we try to focus the discussion on what worries you most, right? And then also mm-hmm. what is the government prepared to do to help businesses prepare and phase that? Right, because it's not as simple as just picking up a production line in the middle of a 5G deployment cycle and starting one up someplace else. There's probably going to be the need to make investment from many governments to make that happen. So I think we're heading in a good direction, but there's a lot of work to be done. We had uh, Senators Cornyn and Warner do a live conference last week, and they're pretty pleased with their uh, 5G bill. What's your view of what's going on in the Congress? They've, they've got the 5G bug. And the nice thing about Corner and Warner Corner, Corner, is that they usually try and attach money to their bills. What, what's your view of the action on the Hill? It's too narrow and it's mm-hmm. not enough money. You yeah. know, we are, in, in the case of the open radio networks, what's interesting is that for the better part of seven or eight months since last fall when when the open ran discussion began everybody attributed a view to us and to ericsson that of course we wouldn't support the idea of open radio interfaces and i can't speak for for ericsson but for us it was demonstrably not true we were the only incumbent supplier with a history of supporting that including the rakuten build in in japan our message has basically been this there's no magic single solution for dealing with the Chinese situation and simply putting forward some money uh, for research and development acceleration on open radio interfaces isn't going to be sufficient. You need a comprehensive strategy that does the following. One, it strengthens your current suppliers and there's plenty of, of meat left on the bone in terms of policies that can be done both directly by the U.S. government and its partners to to help existing suppliers win the bulk of that business that I described earlier that is still up for grabs. Second, you need R&D across 
multiple generations of technology to deal with what China has. There's things that we can accelerate on uh, 5G, including things like dynamic spectrum sharing and end-to-end secure slicing that actually have major benefits if we develop them in the U.S. first. The Chinese are already pouring an inordinate amount of money into foundational 6G research, which is exactly what they did in 5G. And we don't want them to get a, a, a large lead. And then third, you absolutely do need uh, research and development in, in open interfaces. So it has to be all three. And the other thing that sort of concerned us about the, the, the Warner bill is 750 million was the aspirational number that they put out. Uh, we told them that's not enough money. We've spent, you know, a good bit of money on our own treating open RAN research as sort of a uh, an ancillary or parallel path to the other stuff that we were doing uh, over the last couple of years. And seven hundred fifty million dollars spread across an entire ecosystem with caps of grants of no more than twenty million dollars you're not going to be able to do a lot. That's not going to be super transformational. And then what's disappointing is that subsequently that number keeps getting smaller mm-hmm. as Congress moves forward. The current NB, uh, NDAA, I think, for example, um, an amendment from the, the committee has 50 million per year. Um, so I think it's got to be comprehensive and, and it has to be enough money to make a meaningful difference. But we're happy, obviously, the Congress yeah. is looking at it as, as an issue. It just needs to be bolder. Yeah, the, um, they told me they told me this a couple times now that money's the big sticking point for a lot of these people, and what I've been telling them and others on the hill is, you know, think in terms of aircraft carriers like that. You know, you want a fab, you want a foundry. That's probably two aircraft carriers. So I'm not sure the conversion experience has happened across the board. The yeah, new kind of conflict. We're going to need to spend money, but maybe not on the stuff we spend in the 20th century. Um, yeah. Over there. Yeah. yeah, I would add just the following. So we've had some recent conversations with folks. We have the, the largest employee base of all the vendors in the U.S. It's about 11,000. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, we have about 40,000 indirect jobs. The, both those numbers can get substantially larger in the case of Nokia. But mm-hmm. we've asked them is, what is it that ultimately you're you're hoping to accomplish because on the one hand mm-hmm. p- producing alternatives to to just a, a a duopoly if that's what you want to call it to provide yourself with some su- some um, supplier diversity and su- some sustainability that you may get as a result of that is great as as an as an interests go but those players are going to find it very difficult to scale out beyond the United States we are very much going to be part of the ORAN ecosystem. Mm-hmm. But the idea that you will simply be able to replace everything with software is silly. It is demonstrably silly. You're still going to have mm-hmm. hardware involved. And so where do you want it manufactured? There's The U.S. neglected its, its industrial base in this area for a couple of decades. If you want to change that, if you want to have the capability to do high-tech manufacturing, you want major R&D happening in the U.S. in this space, there's no inexpensive way to do that. You're, you've just done it with the CHIPS Act, which can be something of a baseline model. I right. think there's actually great interest across all of the vendors if the U.S. were willing to step up and create a, 
a comprehensive approach for manufacturing and research, you know, relocation assistance, R&D support, you know, bringing, you know, tax credits and manufacturing credits into place, they could actually find themselves with an enormous industrial base very quickly, like in the matter of two to three years, major okay. production activities happening in the U.S. But that, that can't be done with a couple hundred million dollars. Yeah. Yeah, if it's any um, consolation, the second project I did at CSIS uh, 17 years ago when I got here uh, was on was for NSA, and it was on how do we avoid being dependent on a uh, – a uh, single supplier for our telecom industrial base, and oops, yeah the 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 question that the then DoD CIO asked is so so what should we do? It turned out the answer is we were going to do nothing, but <laughs> uh, I think that's changed. Where do you guys come out on ORAN? You're part of it. You said you think it's so. I had a, a conversation with a senior administration official who said. Uh, 18 months to two years, that seems a bit optimistic. What do you mm -hmm. think the trajectory is for this? Uh, what, I'd, what I'd ask them is for what? 18 to two years for what? So I think folks, even within the Open RAN community, have different ideas about mm -hmm. what will happen. Here's our, our answer. We think opening, there are multiple interfaces in the radio layer that need to be opened ultimately mm -hmm. to, to provide this modularity, the ability to bring in different suppliers in different places. Only one of those interfaces, what we call the X2 interface, the front hall interface, has really ever been studied. Um, we do it all the time uh, as part of swaps where, you know, if you lose mm -hmm. this round to a, another vendor, the carrier will say, you need to open the interface so that, you know, and you're willing to do that because you want business with that carry in the future. The point being, mm -hmm. in practice, that interface has been opened many times with no degradation in performance or security. So if we came up with a standard for that, very quickly that interface could be opened. Um, and for that part of the radio network, 18 to months to two years, probably not unrealistic. But for many of the other interfaces, we just simply have no idea yet uh, whether we're going to create performance problems or security vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. And it takes the engineers time to, to process and money to process through that, which is kind of why we said the money they're talking about is probably not enough to do that. But even when you look at, at that, there's a second dimension. We fully support opening all the interfaces. There's a, there's a group of folks whose ultimate aim is to say, we also want, you know, sort of open source software basically commercial off-the-shelf hardware right. um, and anybody's software can run on it. That's not our vision. We don't think that is very likely. And the reason we don't think that's very likely is based on our experience across multiple generations, it's more likely that you will not have the kind of performance that you're looking for. So I think it's more likely that what you're going to see is open interfaces at every level and uh, you, you could basically Lego block a network where mm -hmm. if I if I really like the radio unit from Nokia, but I don't like Nokia's baseband radio, I will go and buy the Mavenir, you know, um, baseband radio, and I'll buy you know something else from from Ericsson, and you'll plug them in across these open interfaces. But the stuff inside the box is very likely to remain proprietary for performance reasons. You still get mm -hmm. competition. So if that's true. Sure. Uh, you know, that probably is going to take a little bit longer uh, than, than two years as well. So I think 
folks need to, to kind of work, work this backwards a little bit and say, what's the end state you're looking for? If, if what an operator wants is the ability to do what I just described, which is for every element in his radio layer to go and have competition with Nokia. He wants to go to Comscope and say, okay, fine, what can you offer me here? You'll get niche players. Not everybody's mm-hmm. going to come in and offer a competitive product in each of the areas of the network. Just It's too difficult to do. I mean, we support 128 different um, mobile radios across multiple generations of technology. It'd be absurd to think that a new entrant could do that and have that scale. So there'll be entry in certain places. And you talk to some operators, that's fine with them. They like that. Mm-hmm. They'll still buy proprietary software because if they get two, three, four, five options for each part of the network, that'd be great for them. Um, but I don't think you have a common vision across even the ORAN companies about what the end game here is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that makes mm-hmm. it kind of hard to calibrate policy backwards, what's needed. We know we need money to accelerate R&D, but I don't think it's realistic to tell people that you're going to see major operators going and building you know, finishing their 5G builds yeah. or transitioning towards 6G in a couple of years with strictly open RAN technology. I, I just don't think that's realistic. It's a very diverse group when you look at it. And when you talk to them individually, it's a different conversation when, than when you talk to them as a group. So, you know. The good, the good news is six months ago, there wasn't even consensus on, you know, open RAN men. Mm-hmm accelerating as quickly as possible the standardization to allow the opening of all those interfaces and i think especially when we jumped into the fray and said yes we're there now Mm -hmm. it's not just upstarts and it's anymore now there are there are more there are few the few people who are not doing it look more conspicuous because everybody else carriers cloud platform companies web scale Mm -hmm. companies are are all looking at this and saying yes i mean on on the concept of opening interfaces and let's have money and let's all put in an effort towards making that happen that's good news and i think that we don't really need agreement on what's going to happen with the software someone the market's going to drive that decision right Mm -hmm. if we decide that we want to still offer a a proprietary software in for our box you know, even though it connects via open interfaces to somebody else's and somebody doesn't want that, they won't buy it. And then we'll do something Mm -hmm. different. I just think for us in the short run, we're having a hard time thinking that it'll be easy to just use open source software and not have a degradation in performance compared to what the the carriers are, are used to experiencing today. And until they are convinced that there will be no step down in performance or security, I can't see them making massive commitments. Yeah, I hear that from them a lot, uh, especially scalability. But some people say that telecom infrastructure technology is kind of on the same path as the internet uh, a few years ago when you move to open standards or common approaches so that you do get that Lego modular effect. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of that? Again, I think it's just a matter of there's a reason that the, the radio layer is sort of the last part mm-hmm. of the network to move in this direction. We've been trending towards virtualization and openness in the core for, for many years. But particularly when you're talking about the, the ability to handle multiple spectrum bands mm-hmm. with an incredibly low level of latency, five nines of reliability, that's pretty hard stuff to do. I'm not suggesting mm-hmm. we're the only ones in the world that know how to do it. 
although we certainly have more experience doing it than than some others. And it, it's it's just very very difficult to do. It's there's radios are inherently analog things, and until there is some evidence that mm. exists that commonly developed software can run on any off the shelf piece of hardware and give you that same level of performance, I think there will be healthy skepticism of it. If that happens, if we sort of cross that Rubicon, then you're right. I'd expect there to be an acceleration. But, you know, sort of major operators like Verizon and AT&T here and, and some of our other customers overseas, their business model, their reputation, everything else relies on them having world-class networks with world-class performance. So that's the burden, right, for anybody that wants yeah. to offer a everything can be standardized, everything can be off the shelf and commoditized, the burden is on those folks to show that 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 can deliver the same performance and security. And until that happens, I think the radio layer will still remain stubbornly, stubbornly slow comparatively, but it is still clearly trending in the direction of openness and modularity. If you had a uh, elevator speech for the, the administration or for congressional leaders on uh, virtualization and SDN, uh, what would it be? What's the sort of quick 100,000 foot level take from Nokia? Gosh, well, it's a, That's a, it's hard a tough one, topic. Yeah. Well, it's a tough topic. And, and what I'd ask for is a little patience for more than 30 seconds, but just to point out to them that, yeah. that it's beware the, the answer that looks elegant and sounds easy because you're probably going to be disappointed with the result. The Chinese did not develop the model that they have been using to 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 strain existing suppliers across the globe overnight. It was an evolution over time to think that you can immediately write mm -hmm. a check and get something which is a silver bullet response would be to greatly underestimate their resiliency. And, and the one thing I would caution that more than anything else, whatever somebody believes about the performance of, of ORAN and where it is, because we clearly do support it, mm -hmm. I have heard repeated ad nauseum that somehow the, the Chinese don't embrace openness and this will be, this will be their kryptonite. And, and Jim, you've done many things, so you know this. You've heard me say this before too, which is, first of all, China Mobile is a big supporter of Open RAN. And Chinese will adapt if it becomes abundantly clear that in order to maintain technology competitiveness and market access, they have to support this. They probably will. But it's not clear they'll even have to because the other policies make their equipment cheaper at any price, by which I mean they can come in and say, so, yes, that, that, that open RAN solution may get you a 40% break or a 30% break on capital expenditure OPEX. I'll match that with my classic model. And oh, by the way, with the Chinese Development Bank, I'll give you five-year deferred payment terms. By the way, these are not hypotheticals, right? This is what happens all the time all over the world. And so it's unclear, again, without more policies from the US, like using XM, using DFC and other sources, any future iteration of this ecosystem is going to going to be competitive globally with the Chinese because we have just left too many policy tools on the shelf. My worry there and having talked to people at some of those agencies is it's just we're going to move really slowly on even trying to, you know, what I tell them is think of it as the Huawei differential. You don't have to match it 100%, but you have right. to 
put in enough to lower the pain for the foreign buyer that they can say to the Chinese, no thanks, uh, I'm not going to take the offer. Uh, but I, do you worry that we're moving too slow on that? I mean, Well, it's not a worry, it's a fact. Um, and I'll share <laughs> this with you. So about uh, last December, you know, we got together with, with the folks from Exim and DFC. Both were going through restructurings and reauthorization. So it was not optimal timing, but they had great interest in learning whether or not their programs could make a difference. And so we showed them that, yes, actually, a lot of these countries aren't real keen on remaining so dependent upon Chinese technology and yeah. financial direct investment, foreign direct investment. So yes, we actually think there's another 10 to 15% share that can be had. This was December. And they said, yes, we, you know, we're, we're all excited, but we don't really know the infrastructure market because we haven't been doing that recently. And so we've brought as many as 10 deals to the export mm -hmm. banks so far, which we think are very interesting deals that should should fit their their criteria and even deals where even as a as a non-us company we have very high levels of us content in the deals because of our r&d here and our manufacturing and things here in the us for for routing etc and we just can't get the deals out the door right there's always a reason of unwillingness to be flexible or change a policy um and and the same is kind of true with the development finance corporation at this point where you know, they've, they're still sticking to, you know, decades old views of the world where we won't get overexposed in that country, even if it's a good deal, even if it's strategically important for the U.S. And I'm not criticizing them for that. It's what they know. But our point back right. to the administration has been is, look, either you want to do this or you don't. Either you agree with us that strategically deploying these tools doesn't just help Ericsson, Nokia, Samsung. Cisco, Juniper, et cetera, today, it helps the future iteration of the ecosystem that we're talking about here, because they're going to run into the same buzzsaw. Yeah. And, and the administration seems frustrated, right? They're like, yes, we're with you. We absolutely think that these are the right things to do, but you know, we still don't have any deals out the door. So I think, yes, it's moving too slowly, um, and there needs to be a more forceful communication that they need to be innovative and curve-bending when it comes to some of the lending activities and practices because they have to be willing to china's not offering commercial rates so the idea right. that you won't go below a commercial bank rate means that your tool is not really interesting to me if i can walk into a commercial bank anywhere and get a loan mm -hmm. you know it's a loan that's not interesting to the operator in brazil right but one that's yeah. a little bit below market rate but still profitable for the bank might be competitive but you've got to be willing to do that so you're saying it's in policies and internal rules and yes. not lack of money? Hmm. Correct. Correct. There's, there's okay. nothing that would prevent them. Um, we have some letters of expressed letters of interest from both entities. Uh, it's just that the terms that they're willing to offer to, hmm. um, to, to the operators in some of these countries just aren't attractive enough. And um, in some of these countries, we can't go to a commercial bank because, you know, Ethiopia, for example, is about to liberalize its telecom market. It's been dominated by a state-run operator that's heavily reliant on Huawei. They're going to issue two new Spectrum licenses. Those will almost certainly be obtained by major uh, operators like Orange or, or Vodafone. Uh, and so you'll get competition in the Ethiopian market. It's one of the largest potential greenfields opportunities mm -hmm. for vendors in the world. And But to be competitive, right, you're going to need 
to ensure that Orange and Vodafone have access to financing that allows them to be competitive um, with what Huawei can offer. Otherwise, the deal delta starts to starts to get too big, and they'll be like, "Well, you know, it's a it's a risky country for us, right? We're willing mm-hmm. to do it, but the business case is better with Huawei as a partner because it's a couple hundred million dollars cheaper. Whereas if you had the financing from DFC or XM or mm-hmm. other you know, export credit agencies, um, they might be able to shrink that delta and say, you know, I'm, I'm willing to go that direction. So uh, it, it's really about policy at this point. It's about how do you calculate content? It's about, you know, what rates they're willing to lend at and whether they're willing to get, you know, go back to a country that they've lent in before. Most of the time they would say no. Like we have a deal in Argentina that we just pitched to them and the quick response was, well, we've already done one in Argentina. And we're like, and so? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's like if the if the, if the point is is that you want high uh, high risk vendors moved away and you want trusted suppliers, you go back to that well in a place like Latin America where Brazil yeah. is up for grabs and trying to decide today does it want to go with trusted suppliers or not? Well, you would think that you would want every tool at your disposal available to Brazil. We have, I think, you know, twenty or so percent market share for radio in Brazil. Ericsson has slightly more than that, but it's 50 to 60 percent Huawei. If you've got an opportunity to to take that down to some flip that market share around, that's hugely consequential uh, in these sorts of things. So it's it is frustrating, right? I mean, we we've done the work, we've come with deals, we've shown them that this is profitable for the banks, strategically important. We were told that we have the, the support of the administration to do it, but we just can't get them out the door. When I was talking to this uh, German official uh, this morning, I asked her the same question and said, where's the EU on this? And you know, her answer was, well, the EU has a lot of rules. What are you getting on the European side? Because there's an effort to make this a multilateral approach to providing financial support. The Europeans there? Yeah, I mean, look, we've we're we're going to everybody uh, at this mm-hmm. point, and we've we're making great use of the export credit agencies in, in other countries. Um, they tend to what makes them less appealing, quite frankly, is they're just not able to to take on the number of deals or at the at the level mm-hmm. that that can can be you know hugely consequential. But you know, Finvera in in our home country. Canadian, the the Belgians, uh, there are many others who who have mm. stepped in here into the mm. fray and are lending. And one of the things that and are actually communicating back to XM and DFC, hey guys, you know you need to change your policies to reflect the modern world, right? We've all changed how we calculate content, you know, for attribution and all the rest. And if XM and DFC did those things, you know, that's that's a serious set of resources that could be made available and by the way probably would also lead to the japanese and others saying wow yes let's do that on a multilateral basis because we can actually see that the not just the terms now but the amount of financing that can be brought to bear could actually in the aggregate rival what the what the cdb is doing and that could be meaningful but i think a lot of people are kind of looking at the u.s and saying biggest biggest financial set of resources you're the ones talking the loudest about it are you willing to do something so i think if we got even any movement Mm. um, it would probably break free some of what's happening in europe the other thing is there's a lot of concern in europe about bilateral trade relations with the chinese i think the more this is is looks less like a coordinated effort to 
to fuss mm. with China and more like, hey, look, we're doing the same things China is doing, which is doing things for export promotion to support our industries in a commercial way. I think the more amenable they'll be to those things. Uh, but it's harder to do that against the backdrop of being you know, told ban, 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 ban. So in some ways, we'd pursue those discussions independent as opposed to multilateral. But yes, the answer is we are doing things with other countries and their, their export credit agencies and uh, um, financing. Yeah, the Japanese actually said that was part of their national strategy. So there's an opportunity there. Whether we can take it in the next few months is another thing. But um, Yeah, and they've now got some skin in the game too, right? Yeah. Not that they didn't yeah. before, but particularly looking at NEC and, mm-hmm. and others, I think they see an opportunity that, hey, if the, if the Chinese dominance in the space is going to recede, there's an opportunity, but they're going to have to actually yeah. put some resources into supporting that movement. I think that's, that's good. I mean, I think this is about, we've moved well beyond the diplomatic stage, which is a message that we've sort of shared with other governments. It's, it's all well and good. But at the end of the day, what it really comes down to in many parts of the world where they have not yet decided on 5G, particularly Latin America, which is also part of my responsibility, mm-hmm. a lot of it is you're dealing with financial balance sheets of operators that look differently than they look in the United States. And you know, you want to the maximum extent possible not make this purely a financial decision. You know, security yeah. is, an, is an utmost concern, but maybe factors in less if there's a huge delta there between what someone else can offer and and what the trusted suppliers can. So I think, as you said at the very top of our talk, if you get closer to sort of par value or even, even in the same uh, vicinity, you, you now put the primary focus on security and reliability, not just of the stuff you're deploying, but in the case of, um, you know, restrictions that the U.S. has now imposed to the foreign product rule and everything else, if you chose a, a certain supplier who is subject to those restrictions, are they sustainable? Those things yeah. rise to the top of the heap if the differential in cost of deploying the network becomes smaller. Can you, at a 50,000-foot level, describe Nokia's supply chain? I mean, who do you, in just in country terms, who do, who do you buy from? Who do you rely on the most? I mean, uh, so about 40% actually of our supply chain is U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, at the top, I told you we had about 40,000 indirect jobs we support in the yeah. U.S. A lot of our most critical product lines are, you know, for example, encryption software for, mm-hmm. for the routing is developed here in the United States. That whole routing, what we call I-Online, has manufacturing uh, done in, in places like Mexico, not in, not in China. It, it varies by group. We have a very, very diverse supply chain, multiple sites. Redundancy is a key part of our, of our strategy in case there's any, you know, uh, infiltration, adulteration, you know, a, a site yeah. goes down. We have the ability. So we're, we're not overly exposed compared to anyone else when it comes to China, but back to, because I think that's what you're really asking is how much are we exposed in China? And the answer is not more than anybody else. And yeah. again, we, in part, in response to the tariff imposition, that caused us to make adjustments to our supply chain, uh, quite a few adjustments to our supply chain to other countries. Uh, we didn't think that those were going to be short term in nature. Mm-hmm. So we took that opportunity to move certain things. The stuff that that is there still, a lot of times is either the result of contractual obligations that we've had for a couple of years or are things we haven't been able to find 
alternative sources for. And so there are still some components sure. uh, that are sourced from China. But, you know, the amount that we source from the U.S. is larger than we source from China, as an example. Well, and, and part of it is people I, would know that. Yeah, part of it is that one of the things that tends to get overlooked in the discussion is that Huawei has a diverse supply chain, too. And so if they couldn't get access to NEC or Fujitsu or Intel or Qualcomm, they can't make 5G either. So that mm-hmm. that's part of it is if we're looking at splitting these things, I mean, the Chinese might be more at risk than, than the Western companies. Yeah, I mean, there is some concern, obviously, right? You saw the, the headlines, I'm sure, uh, rumors that, that China would retaliate with export yeah. controls. And, you know, you hate to see the weaponization of the supply chain uh, mm-hmm. as an issue because it's highly disruptive to everyone. But I think one of the things that we pointed out to folks is, A, we don't think that that was likely to happen. Um, but B, that, you know, we aren't nearly as exposed as, as perhaps people might think mm-hmm. um, in terms of, of critical components. So it's a very it's a very global diversified supply chain. It's getting more so and that won't surprise you, right? That's just prudent. And 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 that's why going back to the conversation that we had earlier is where the US government or other governments, but particularly this government, could really be helpful would be some precision around what worries you the most. Because mm-hmm. it can't be everything. We can't boil the ocean. But if there are particular components that concern you the most we're past the stage where we're going to come in and say to you, no, 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 you needn't worry about that thing because here's the forensic auditing I do. Here's the whatever, but you got to tell us, you know, Mm -hmm. what, what you're most concerned about in terms of the supply chain, because then I think that allows companies an opportunity to begin phasing movement because you can't move everything all at once. And without that definition, or, you know, the conversation inside our company, I'm sure it's the same conversation going on inside other companies right now is what in the hell is a clean path, right? You're hearing that term spoken a lot. And I don't know, I can't answer that. I don't know what that means. It, back to mo- our mobile networks unit or to our fixed networks unit, they say, well, what does that mean? You know, is the eventuality we're not going to be allowed to sell into the United States if we don't source everything in the United States? And I say, no, I don't think it's that. Um but I can't give you timelines. I can't give you a sense. I mean, folks would rather we not be doing things in certain places. That much should be clear. I just, at this moment, can't tell you which things and I can't tell you how long. So I think the U.S. would find a lot more support and a lot more aggressive action being taken by companies who I think really want to de-risk their -hmm. supply chains, but they aren't sure where to start because at this point, it seems to be they're worried about everything, but they can't be worried about everything. Yeah, I think I've been thinking about how you turn a soundbite into policy, and uh, it's harder than it looks. Yeah. Did did we miss anything? This is uh, we're we're pretty much coming up on our time here. But any last thoughts? Any final? What did we miss? I don't think you missed anything. I think that it's just really important for um, for policymakers to recognize that you know, the die is not yet cast. There's plenty of opportunity to create mm. opportunities for for Western suppliers in key markets. Um, and that to do so means we got to deploy the full complement of tools we have. It's the financing in the short run. When you're thinking about R&D, ORAN is critically important. It absolutely is part of the U.S.'s future, but it's a risky bet if you're mm-hmm. not supporting anything else. 
you need there's there's opportunities in 5g and 6g so they need to be thinking broader and bolder and and uh i think there's great opportunities uh it's as you mentioned it's a crazy time we've got an election coming we might be looking at a very different landscape of policymakers next year um, but i think these issues translate and so to the extent that industry and groups like CSIS are able to keep highlighting the need for comprehensiveness and thoughtfulness and pointing out what those things are, then I think we don't have to start at ground zero next year if we have a different Congress or a different administration. I think they're that important. They should be bipartisan and they should translate. All right, well, listen, okay. I really appreciate the invite. Yeah. I, I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.